Okay. Good morning, everybody. Okay, so let's visualize our friends, the merit field. Remember, they're your friends. Yeah, the Buddha's here to help us. Remember, just see yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings. When you do this, try and get a feeling for the difference in the way sentient beings see things and how enlightened beings see those same things. So as human beings, we have human intelligence that gives us the ability to use reason and logic to analyze things. And that ability is quite helpful because without it, we simply accept everything that our five senses tell us as real, and we accept everything we think as completely, infallibly real. So this ability to think and and analyze is quite precious, and it's important that we use it and use it properly. Because, of course, as we all know, there we can think of all sorts of quote-quote good reasons that justify bad conclusions. But they're only the quote-quote good reasons, and so we have to really check our analysis and make sure that We're doing it properly. But when we do, then clarity comes in our minds. Not because we know some objective truth that exists the way it appears to us out there. But because we know that the way things appear to us is actually false, And so that opens 
things up for us. Not to claim that whatever we think is true, but to not get so stuck in boxes, categories, biases, prejudices, societal pressure, and so on. So using that analysis properly opens our mind to seeing the kindness of enemies, to see that sentient beings, any particular sentient being, is not 100% good or 100% bad, but all of them are kind and all of them are valuable and all of them are worthy of our compassion and our respect. If we see other sentient beings in this way, then it becomes much easier to generate great compassion for them, and that makes it easier to generate bodhicitta. And then through the force of that bodhicitta, that again propels us to use the analytical mind as an aid to understanding the nature of reality. So Jeffrey uh, said something on at our Tuesday class that uh, is quite obvious, but you know we may not think about it in that way. And that is that as we meditate on uh, all the other stages of the path and the different ways of looking at things and the different meditations from precious human life, you know, renunciation, bodhicitta, and so on, we may not be examining their ultimate nature, but we are definitely generating a kind of wisdom from reflecting on them. Yeah, and we often uh, neglect to see, to have the thought, oh, I'm generating wisdom. Yeah, and instead just think, well, here are all these other things I have to think about. (laughs) But when you think about them and you can see them clearly, it's a form of wisdom. It's not 
the ultimate wisdom that realize the ultimate nature, but it is a conventional wisdom that helps us see the conventional world in a more accurate way. And that is very important if we want to realize the ultimate nature of reality. Okay. Because when we, uh, you know, you, you hear this over and over again, that the people who have a correct understanding of emptiness are the ones who have the greatest respect for the law of karma and its effects. And they're the people who keep their precepts well. So even though with the ultimate wisdom, it's negate, 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 it has to be done on a foundation, you know, of a robust understanding of how things operate on the conventional level so that we don't jump to the wrong conclusion and think that because we cannot find things when we uh, use ultimate analysis to, uh, to conclude that then they don't exist at all. And then say, well, then there's no good, there's no bad, there's no karma and no effects, and so I can do whatever I want. Yeah, because there's no ethical discipline, it's all just, you know, kind of something that we make up that doesn't really exist. Okay? So you see, you know, what how all these things kind of come together in, in you know, really un- understanding conventional truths and, you know, ultimate truths in, in, in the same way, you know. Uh, yeah, we have to understand both of them, okay? And also, you know, these things, I and mean, we've been doing so much with, this chapter on fortitude of looking at sentient beings from different perspectives and seeing situations in, that we find ourselves in uh, with sentient beings from different perspectives. Yeah. And that kind of rattles us and that we have a lot of resistance to it because if we see sentient beings differently and we see situations differently, then, you know, we have to give up our anger and our attachment. And, you know, we've lived our life following, you know, our anger and attachment for eons. And uh, it's scary giving that up. If I don't hate my enemies my goodness, they're going to run all over me. Yeah? And if I don't, uh, you know, treasure my the things I'm attached to and do whatever I can to get them, I'm going to wind up to be a pauper. And we jump to these insane conclusions, you know, because there's so much resistance to really changing the way that our mind sees things. Yeah. Do you bump up, bump up into your resistance in your meditation? Yeah. Right. 
Oh, the like what we went through, you know, the last few weeks. Oh, the enemy is very kind. Yeah, they show me what I need to work on. And we say, yeah, yeah, that's just one of those phony baloney tools so, so that I don't get angry. Or, no, not so that I don't get angry, so that I stuff my anger and pretend I don't get angry. Yeah. It's just one of those stories we make up. But it's not actually true that sentient beings are kind. Yeah. Does that thought come in your mind sometimes? Yeah. Or, yeah, well, maybe they're kind, but they've been really mean to me. And I've got to let them know it. So, you know, we bump up against these things all the time because our way of thinking is is very, very rigid. And we don't know, you know, when we start to see things in another way, sometimes we get very confused. Well, what's the real way? Are these sentient beings really kind or are they really mean? You know? They've got to be one or the other. They can't be both. Yeah, they've got to either be kind, which means everything they do is perfect, or it means that they're really deceptive and have rotten motivations, which means everything they do is horrible. So which is it? Yeah. And so our inability to see, oh, a sentient being may have many good qualities and have many faults. And the good qualities are not who that person is, and the bad qualities aren't who they are either. Yeah. But, you know, then we go, oh, but I've got to, you know, no, I've got to decide who they are and what they are. Because if I talk like this to my friends and family, they're going to send me to the nut house. Okay. Is this ringing true for some of you, or are some of you thinking that I belong in the nut house? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's um, yeah. So anyway, the point was, you know, as we meditate on these kinds of things, yeah, we're developing a, a conventional wisdom that is actually preparing us to meditate on emptiness. Yeah, because it's developing in us a wisdom that understands causality. And that actions bring results. And if you don't create the actions, those results aren't coming. And if you create a small action, it could wind up to be a big result. And that the causes are going to remain and will definitely bring a result unless we do something to interfere with it. And that goes for both virtuous and and non-virtuous causes. So there we have the four qualities of karma that come at the beginning of 
the section on karma in the long run. Okay. So, yeah, beginning to really understand these things and adopt them as part of the way we live our life, part of the way we see things, part of what guides us. People have any questions about this so far? Okay, well, it'll tie in with what's coming up. Okay, so we left off at 113. Let's just do um, a little review of 111 and 112. Okay, so 111 says thus, since patient acceptance is produced in dependence on one with a very hateful mind, that person should be worthy of veneration, just like the sacred dharma, because they are a cause of fortitude. Okay, so this is the verse is a perfect example of how our mind has resistance and says, "Oh, that's just a nice story that they're making up, so that I can, you know, ignore the fact that I'm angry and make it look like I'm really holy." Okay, but think about it, okay? <laughs> yeah, we, we cultivate uh, patience and fortitude, independence, you know, depending on people who harm us, people with a hateful mind who maybe want to harm us, yeah? Because we can't generate fortitude with people who are kind, yeah. You can't because you need somebody who harms you to pra- harms you to practice fortitude, not somebody who who is kind to you. Yeah. So that's why finding beings who who harm us, you know, in one of the preceding v- verses he said it's like finding a treasure. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is quite the opposite from how the world thinks. Isn't it? Yeah. The world thinks that person harmed me. They're an enemy. I should destroy them because if I don't destroy them, then they will harm me again. And if I don't destroy them, other people will think I'm a whip, wimp, and those people will harm me. Yeah. So, my anger is my friend, because it's going to give me the energy to destroy, you know, that person who is harming me. Okay, so combining the harm with the person. Because the person harms me, that means the person is bad. Okay, so remember we're always talking about separating the person and the action? Yeah, so this is a good example of it. That person may do a harmful action. It doesn't mean that person's bad. The world says that person is bad. Buddha says that person has the potential to become a fully awakened Buddha. How can you say they're bad? 
Yeah, you can say the action they did was harmful. But you can't say they're bad. It's very opposite to the way the world thinks. Mm -hmm. And so being well-trained in the world, we have a lot of resistance to changing how we think about things. And a lot of fear. Yeah, that if we give up our old way of uh, dealing with things, that then we will just get tromped over, stomped over. Yeah. There's a lot of fear there. But we haven't analyzed whether our old techniques actually work or not. Yeah. We just assume they work because we've used them for so long. But do they actually work? Okay. So I find what is very helpful here, uh, there's one example I find helpful because this same mechanism works whether you're an individual or a group or nations, how different nations relate to each other. Okay, so when people are being oppressed, yeah, what does society say you should do? You should be angry, yeah, and you should do whatever you can to harm them back because they're harming you, right? They threw sand at, at me in the, play, in the sandbox. I'm going to throw sand right back at them, okay? Now, look at this uh, from the viewpoint of the Palestinian uh, situation. Okay? So the Palestinians, uh, they never really had a country, yeah, that, but they, they were under British control. And then, uh, you know, with the arrival of many refugees, in the Palestine area, the state of Israel was created by the UN, okay? And the Palestinians were, they didn't have their freedom, yeah? They became, uh, you know, some of them lived as refugees within Israel, some of them lived as refugees in, you know, in Gaza Strip in the West Bank, yeah? So, they, they, you know, under the leadership of Nasser Arafat, they did exactly what I was just speaking about. Okay? These people are oppressing us. How do we deal with it? We've got to harm them back. Because that will bring world attention to our suffering, and it will impose damage on them. And the more we make them hurt, the more they will think about what they're doing and change their policy. Okay, so if you look back over the Palestinian struggle for autonomy, how many people have been killed? A lot. Yeah, at first, uh, some of you may not be old enough to remember, but, <laughs> you know, one of the Olympics, I forget which year, where they kidnapped some of the Israeli athletes and killed them, then always shower, you know, throwing um, 
bombs and so forth, back and forth, and uh, so much in Palestine. They rebuild, and then there starts another intifada, and whatever they just built now gets bombed and destroyed. And, you know, this has been going on. They, they kind of lost their, uh, you know, their, their land in the late forties, you know, kind of around 49, 50. Yeah. 48, 49, 50 in that area. Yeah. Many people have died in the Palestinian Israeli conflict. Many people. Do the Palestinians have their freedom and their autonomy? No. Okay, look at the Tibetan situation with their being occupied by China, okay? And that happened around the same time, around 1949, 1950. The PLA started encroaching on Tibet and occupied the eastern part, then occupied the central part, and then in 1959, there was the abortive uprising and the Tibetans went into exile. Some Tibetans went into exile. The rest stayed there. The majority, of course, stayed there. It was their home. And and then you had environmental destruction. You had genocide. You had incredible religious oppression going on in, in, uh, in Tibet. Okay. Did the Tibetans uh, um, kidnap anybody and kill them? No. Okay. Uh, how many people have died in the Tibetan struggle for their autonomy? Not very many. Yeah. There were a few people who self-immolated. Yeah. But anybody else who died were basically killed, you know, due to the Chinese occupation, not to due to the Tibetans' rebellion. Okay. Now, why haven't the Tibetans rebelled and killed people and taken up arms and so on? Well, His Holiness's leadership and Buddhist principles. Now, not all the young people agree with this. Yeah. Some of the young people would like to be violent. But His Holiness puts a stop on that. And uh, he constantly is telling them, do not hate the Chinese. Yeah. And, you know, he speaks out directly about the tragedy that's happened in, T- in Tibet. Yeah. But he does not advocate violence. Yeah. Look at Martin Luther King, you know, same thing. They, you know, they lost the, their, uh, ind- their freedom, their independence, what, in the 1600s. So it's even been a longer struggle for them. Yeah. But what you look when you see all these situations is that the people who are violent, they don't realize their aims any faster than the people who are nonviolent. Yeah. And the people who are nonviolent uh, are noticed by the world for their nonviolence. 
that doesn't mean they roll over and just say, do whatever you want. No. You know, you look at what Gandhi did. He, he didn't say, oh, British, yeah, sure, fine. It's all okay. No, there were protests. Yeah. Yeah. Same with the blacks, same with the Palestinians, same with the Tibetans. There's protest, but not violence. Yeah. And, and really emphasizing keeping the anger in check. And in the case of His Holiness, really applying these things so as to, you know, release the anger altogether. Okay. So when we really look, at this example, at least on the, the big scale in, in societies across nations, violence and anger do not achieve your goal any faster than, you know, working on your anger and being nonviolent. Okay. So it's, it's, it's similar, you know, like, to, to really look, because we've always seen our anger as our friend. Whether we're the explosive anger who throws and yells and screams and are violent, or the implosive anger, which totally shuts down and backs away, that's not being peaceful. Yeah, if you implode with anger, that's not being peaceful. It's, it's another way of, you know, getting to somebody. And the mind is equally as upset. Yeah. But if we really examine, does following anger achieve our own aims? Yeah, not really. Okay, so if, we, you know, and this is... This is why it's so important to apply the teachings to our own life. Because unless we look at our own life experiences and seeing how our anger does not achieve our purposes, if we don't see that from our own experience, then there's, we're not going to really be able to change. Yeah. If we just use the examples of the Palestinians and the Tibetans. You know, and other people with their anger. Yeah. But it's so important to check. Yeah. So to think of times when we've been really angry and how we've acted. And, yeah, what have we desired? You know, what kind of outcome would we, did we desire during those times when we were really fed up? Yeah. And were we able to achieve our purposes by getting angry and harming others, either physically or, you know, verbally? Because so we can do a lot of damage verbally. Yeah. So to, to really uh, see, you know, my old strategies, have they worked? So that's something to explore in your meditation, yeah. And then you say, okay, well, what will happen with if I try a new status, uh, strategy? 
no, I can't do it. They'll walk all over me. Well, let's just imagine. Let's just imagine. Okay. Somebody did something that I really don't like. Yeah, like. What's an example? That's not the the spatula example. So perfect, but we got to grow beyond the spatula. (laughs) Okay, you know, what does somebody do? They told me they would do it, and then they did. Oh yes, that one. They promised. They promised. Yeah, yeah. They said they would do something, and they said they would do it by a certain time, and nope. It didn't get done. You were counting on them doing it. You expected it to be done. You turned up ready to do the next step and saw that the step they were supposed to take care of did not happen. And you're mad. Okay. And then just try. Okay. If I get mad and I go to that person, I trusted you, I asked you, and you promised you would do this. And you know that the whole workings of this organization depend on people fulfilling their promises and doing what they say they're going to do. And you completely, did you lie? Did you forget about it? You're such an imbecile. You know, and you start on the name calling, and, you know, and, and then you get even madder and like, Why did we accept you here to start with? You need to run down the hill as fast as you can. Do us a a favor and get out of here. Uh, You know, you're thinking that. You don't say that part. But you're really wishing, oh, I'll get the car ready for them. And they can go, you know, I can't stand this person around here anymore. Okay. So you say that. You throw a tantrum. Uh, everybody get everybody knows about it, right? Yeah, whether you work in an office or a factory or a monastery or home, you get you know one person gets mad. Everybody knows about it, you know, <laughs> because the vibe and also because you're you know you're posturing and you're laying it on thick with the other person. Okay, and so what's the outcome of that going to be? Yeah. Well, we yeah we kind of know what what's what's the outcome going to be. <laughs> it's just it's just tet for tet. I mean, it's back and forth, back and forth. The everything's falling apart. There's no trust. There's no care. There's no respect. There's and the whole community's kind of going. What happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And everybody's disturbed, and the trust has been destroyed. You know. And when trust is destroyed, that's difficult. Yeah. Okay. Then, how do you, you know, play the situation out where you don't explode and you don't get angry? Yeah. And it's not that you're stuffing your anger down, but you look at this person. Here's somebody who promised that they would do something and they didn't do it. And they left me and everybody else in a lurch. Yeah. And their mother sent him being who in many other times has been kind to me, even in this life. Many other times they have actually done what they said they were going to do. Yeah? 
and sometimes maybe not as well as I would have liked, but sometimes they actually did things that nobody else could do that helped the community. So this person is not 100% bad, yeah? And I, I want to know why they did that. But in a way, why is irrelevant? Yeah? How does understanding why, you know, well, they, if they say, well, you know, my little toe hurt, yeah, come up with a better excuse. Um, <laughs> yeah? Uh, the, the why, I don't know how much why actually calms our anger. No? Why did somebody do something, you know, not keep their word? Why? Because they're, why not? Because they're sentient being. Yeah. The, the specific motivation doesn't really matter. Just the fact that they're a sentient being is enough of a reason to show why they didn't do what they said they were going to do. Yeah, because this is a characteristic of all sentient beings, including us. Yeah, have we always done what we said we were going to do? <laughs> well, I tried to, and yeah, I did. I always, I always fulfilled my word. Uh, except then, then, <laughs> then, you know. And so, how can how can we address this this situation? Yeah, and really, you know, how can we use this? Yeah, change it from how can we. How can I use this situation to show that I am dominant and more powerful? How can we use this situation to start a community dialogue about trust? Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah? To use these kind of situations so that everybody started to think about trust or responsibility. You know, bring it into a dialogue about some principle or value that we all say we have, but we've never spent much time thinking about. And that could be a really good outcome from a situation like this. Don't you think? The whole community got involved in a discussion about Trust or responsibility. Yes, it will take more time. And I want this thing done now. But for the, in the long term, for the health and welfare of a group of people working together, having that, that kind of dialogue is really, really beneficial. Again, whether you're at a workplace or a family or somewhere else. You look like you have a question. Well, how could someone start that dialogue, like at the Abbey? I think by by um, 
saying, maybe at a stand-up meeting or maybe after lunch sometime, you know, uh, there's a situation that happened and, uh, you know, and, and because here at least everybody's really trying to do their best. And if we are transparent, we could say, you know, a situation happened. I found myself starting to get angry. I remembered that teaching and, you know, and I want to try this out. And what do people think about, you know, us doing just, you know, some discussions the same way we do regular discussions, you know, in small groups and large groups <laughs> about uh, trust or about responsibility or whatever else you want to be and say, you know, this, th- because I think this would be a good situation to just, you know, try this out on. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, uh, you know, and then incorporate with that. Um, you know, so I, I know that before I can have that dialogue, I need to get calmer, a little bit calmer and see the situation clearer and not, and get out of the blame mode and get out of the angry mode. So, you know, we're not going to start that dialogue this afternoon. Uh, you know, we'll wait a couple of days and, but then, uh, you know, talk. For me, um, anger comes so quickly that it often is overwhelming me. And then I'm, you know, looking at it after it happened. But yeah. I've been trying to work with this notion about, um, the most important thing is not to break the connection. And that's kind of from Marshall, yeah. you know, NBC. Mm-hmm. That that's more important than anything else being right or, you know. Yeah. And to to use that as the, like the, the place, place marker. Mm-hmm. So that then it keeps me here instead of all of my attention on that and them. Because that's when, that's the funnel for all the anger. But if it stays here, then um, I can keep my wits about myself a little better, I think. Yeah, and that's the whole thing about solving the problem isn't about making the other person change. It's about, you know, changing inside here. And that thing about not breaking the connection... I mean, that's very much, if you're practicing bodhicitta, one of the big things. You know, you do not want to break a connection with a sentient being. Yeah? Because if you break it in this life, then even in future lives, it's going to be more difficult to help that person. Yeah? When you, when you are better, when we're better practitioners, and we can actually help them, you know? So it's important to keep that connection when we're, we're doing uh, bodhisattva practice, you know. So sometimes I, I hear, especially when we were, I was doing retreats at Cloud, Cloud Mountain, and of course this depends on the latest language used by, uh, uh, you know, who's ever talking because uh, the language changes every few years. But, um, you know, people say, t- saying that person is toxic. Yeah, that person is toxic, and I have to just separate myself from them. I have to have nothing to do with them because they're just toxic. 
Have you ever heard people talk that way? Yeah, I mean, that's been quite, this, this was more the language of a few years ago, but it still hangs out now, you know. The situation's toxic. Yeah, that person may be my mother, may be my father, may be somebody who helped me once before, but now they're toxic, the situation is toxic, I cannot stand to be around them, and my life is much better if they are just out of it. Okay. Now, <laughs> yeah, does that anger really protect you from what's going on with that person? Yeah, that anger keeps you involved with the person, but involved in a really negative way. Because you may say they're toxic and I'm never speaking to them again, but what are you thinking about all day? how toxic they are and how you're not going to speak to them again because I need to take care of myself and they're just always harming me, you know. And, and so the mind is still fixated on that person in that situation. We can't let it go. Yeah. Whereas, you know, what, what would happen if we just say, boy, and put it in, the, in a Buddhist book, boy, there's, you know, something... You know, their mind's afflicted, my mind is afflicted, you put two afflicted minds together and, you know, you're getting this mess, and I can't control them, but I have to work on my afflicted mind. Yeah, And I have to realize that, okay, that person may be doing something now, but that doesn't mean they're an evil person. In a different lifetime, in a different situation... If I met, you know, that's, you know, in a different lifetime, of course it would be different. Even in this lifetime, if I met that person in a different situation, we would have a totally different relationship. Yeah. How can I throw one sentient being who has been kind to me since beginningless lifetimes, you know, as my parent, as people who have helped me in one way or another, how can I just say that they, you know, are inherently toxic and, you know, from now on in this life and all future lives, I want nothing to do with them? That's a little bit unreasonable on my part, you know? How, how, can, how can I think like that? Um, it's, it's starting to happen in, you know, the secular world, um, this work by this person's name is uh, Resma Medican. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he's an African-American man that, and a psychologist, but he exactly, he's saying, okay, enough. We are hurting each other. And the mm -hmm. words are different, but he talks about clean pain and dirty pain and how um, our traumas are affecting one another and to heal it. And so he's been facilitating dialogues with uh, people who are the African-American folks with white police officers, all of this talking about this. So it's really starting to happen in a different way in the world. And it's really, uh, it's amazing some of these dialogues that are happening. Mm, very nice. So it's happening. Very good. Uh, yeah, I have a question related to what Venerable Jigme said. She said to be aware of ourselves when we are angry. So when I get angry, 
then there should be some self-centeredness or at least a lot actually but when i look at my mind the only thing i see is the other person so, like, so how can we like how can we identify our own self-centeredness in there okay uh, uh i think there just see you want to identify your own self-centeredness okay is when you see the other person look at how you're describing that person they are this they are this they are this they did this you know lots of judgments and then say uh where are the where are those thoughts or judgments coming from yeah is the other person going around saying i'm selfish i'm angry i'm inconsiderate no where are the all those judgments coming from me okay why am i seeing that person that way because i want to be happy and they're interfering with my happiness and my happiness is more important than anybody else's happiness. Yeah, and so you begin to come back to that self-centered mind that's that um what I call my rules of the universe. How I think everybody and everything should be. And then I realize, you know, those are my rules of the universe made up by my mind, but they do not pertain to the universe. <laughs> you know <laughs> unbeknownst to me the rules i made up for the universe actually don't apply to the universe <laughs> yeah so i need to you know uh check up my rules of the universe and you know see if they're a little bit self-centered you know and then we discover you know i i really like this periscope thing you know that when we look at a, a situation with the mind with the self-centered mind we it's like we have this little periscope you know that's going up and out and there's this whole big world and we're seeing this and we're seeing and the lens we're seeing it through is the lens of me i my and mine it's not an objective lens it's a very partial lens based on the premise well the first rule of of the universe which is i am always right <laughs> followed by the second rule of the universe is everybody should always do what i want them to do or what i think they should do because i'm always right and then to to really begin to see how you know thinking like that is really nonsense mm -hmm. okay yeah cuz if you think like that then you know you don't need qanon because our self-centered mind is developing its own conspiracy theories you don't need q to give you any yeah 
Because all of a sudden, with the self-centered mind, it's like, oh, that person's doing this. And they talk to that person, so I think that person's in on it too. And actually, you know, I'm so nice to everybody in this office, but they all, I know they all talk about me when I'm not here. Yeah, I know that. And you know, who, really, who needs Q? We just invent our own. It's very helpful, uh, you know, if you want to bring in some Majumika philosophy here to think about uh, you know, the difference between conventional existence and ultimate existence. Yeah. And that conventional existence is, uh, it's just based on human conventions. Yeah. And there is nothing ultimately true about it. You can't say anything is anything. Yeah. There's three criteria for seeing if something is conventionally true. Yeah, so this is a good, uh, good three criteria. First is it's renowned in the world. Okay. So everybody in this office hates me because one person, it was their job to clean up around the coffee machine and they didn't and I, because they know that I don't like dirty, uh, the dirty tables and that I would come and clean it up if they didn't. So they're taking advantage of my, my kindness. Okay. Yeah. You, can you imagine somebody thinking like that? Well, a few of you are fessing up. A few of you are. <laughs> okay. You know, and, and then, uh, okay. So is that conventionally known in the world? No, it's known to me. <laughs> but not conventionally in the world. Okay, so it didn't meet that one. Or, or sometimes you, well, yes, it is, because I know there's other people in the office who are on my side against those people who act so unscrupulously, 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 yeah, those people who are jerks, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, okay, well, there are some people who agree with me, you know, okay, so. And then, uh, you know, it's it's not uh, my my assessment is not contradicted by another uh, valid conventional cognizer. Okay. Well, yeah, all my friends agree with me. Yeah, no other. <laughs> they must all have valid conven- conventional valid cognizers because they agree with me. Yeah. Well, no, that's not actually the definition of a conventional valid cognizer, <laughs> you know, that everybody agrees with me, you know. It has to function in a certain way. I mean, it's it's like, and a lot of people can believe in a, a conspiracy theory, but that doesn't make the conspiracy theory true. Okay. And this is what we learned way back when, before we learn the the term conspiracy theories, this is the whole story about the emperor has new clothes. You know, 
that you can make up a story and a lot of people will believe it, but it doesn't mean it's conventionally true. You know, because that little boy in the story, yeah, he was the one with a, con a conventional reliable cognizer, not the rest of the population who, you know, saw the emperor wearing the finery. Okay. You have that story in Germany? Yeah. So it's a good story, you know. And then, and then the third criteria is that it doesn't contradict uh, a, a mind analyzing the ultimate. But, you know, our judgment about somebody, yes, it, it's definitely contradicted by a, uh, a mind analyzing the element because we are really uh, the ultimate because we're very in, entrenched in um, self-grasping at that moment. Yeah, which is yeah, not a valid, uh, a reliable cognizer. Okay. Yeah, so we've, we should actually do something with the text today. But um, I, I hope this is giving you <laughs> some ideas about things to look at. Yeah. Okay. So, verse 112, <laughs> which we also did last week. Therefore, the Mighty One has said that the field of sentient beings is similar to a Buddha field, for many who have pleased them have thereby reached perfection. Okay, so the Mighty One, the Buddha, said that the field of sentient beings, he doesn't say it's exactly like the Buddha field, but it's similar to the Buddha field. Yeah, in what way is it similar? In the way that many who have pleased sentient beings have attained perfection or awakening, just as many who have pleased the Buddhas and made offering to the Buddhas have attained um, perfection or awakening. Okay, so in those two ways, the sentient beings and, or in that, that one way, the sentient beings and the Buddhas are similar in that we can make offerings to both. We practice our uh, ethical conduct with respect to both. And we practice uh, fortitude. Okay. And especially with sentient beings, okay, we need sentient beings as the object of our fortitude, just as if we want to accumulate merit by making offerings to the Buddhas, we need them, you know, to be the ones that we make offering to. Now, you might be wondering, why am I talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the holy beings being objects of our ethical conduct or, or fortitude or whatever? It's because you know, when we have an afflicted mind, we will we can act that out in relationship to anybody, holy being or sentient being. Yeah. But here it you know, this verse is is really emphasizing that if we uh you know strive to please sentient beings, yeah, we create merit that's very similar to when we please the Buddhas. And, you know, here thinking in terms of making offering or whatever. 
in terms of pleasing them. But actually what, the, what pleasing the Buddha means is something deeper than making offerings because actually the Buddha doesn't need that pair. Okay, so, so the idea that, that both, both the field of sentient beings and the field of holy beings are similar in that they are objects with which we create merit. Okay, now 113, we're moving ahead. A Buddha's qualities are gained from the sentient beings and their conquerors alike. So why do not, uh, why, so why do I not respect them in the same way as I respect the conquerors? Okay, so we respect the conquerors, the Buddhas who have conquered their afflictions. Yeah, they gain their qualities in relationship to sentient beings and in relationship to the Buddhas. When they were on the path, they made offerings and so on to the Buddhas, uh, but also through sentient beings. Because when we practice the bodhisattva path, who do we generate bodhicitta for? Do we generate bodhicitta so that the Buddhas can become, we can lead the Buddhas to full awakening? No. We generate bodhicitta so that we can benefit sentient beings. Yeah. So, you know, it's sentient beings who are the foundation of our bodhicitta. And in the same way, uh, you know, before all the Buddhas attained a full awakening, it was the sentient beings um, that were the basis of their practice, too, who they accumulated merit with. Okay, so seeing that we create so much merit in relationship to sentient beings, you know, and in relationship to the conquerors, how come we don't respect sentient beings in the same way that we respect the conquerors? Okay, and so this comes down to Sam being kinder to me than the Buddha. Sentient beings are kinder to me than the Buddhas because if we want to practice fortitude, we have to do it with sentient beings. Okay, so why not respect them? Because they are the ones who are aiding us in our practice. So remember, just as the previous verses said, when you want to create merit by, by uh, being generous, beggars are no hindrance. You're doing that when you want to uh, create merit by keeping precepts. The person who gives you the precepts is not an impediment to your doing that. Yeah. Okay, then 114. Of course, they are not similar in the quality of their intentions, but only in the fruits that they produce. So it is in this respect that they have excellent qualities and are therefore said to be equal. Okay, so what this verse is saying is, is if we're going to compare the sentient beings uh, as a field, you know, with which we create merit, and compare the holy beings as a field with which we create merit, okay, they're, they are both similar in that we can create merit with them, and they give us that possibility. However, they are not similar in terms of how their minds work, okay, in terms of their intentions, because sentient beings are under the influence of ignorance 
anger and clinging attachment. The holy, you know, the Buddhas are not. So they're not similar in the quality of their intention, but only in the fruits that they produce. The fruit is our creation of merit in relationship to them. Okay, is this clear? And so it is in this respect that they have excellent qualities in the respect that they are the basis with which we can create merit. And it's in that respect they're said to be equal because we depend upon them equally to create the merit needed for full awakening. Okay? If we just made offerings to the Buddha and despise sentient beings, uh, awakening is impossible. Yeah, no way to to even attain the first bodhisattva path if we have that kind of idea. 115. Whatever merit comes from venerating one with a loving mind is due to the eminence of sentient beings. And in the same way, the merit of having faith in Buddha is due to the eminence of the Buddha. Okay, so here it's talking about how we create merit with them, why they're valuable. Okay, so if we venerate somebody who has a loving, compassionate mind, yeah, it's we venerate them because of how they relate to sentient beings. Yeah, and why do you why do you respect His Holiness Dalai Lama so much? Why why is he respected in society, even by people? who know nothing about Buddhism, who aren't Buddhists. Why? Is it because he makes offerings to the Buddha? Is that why other people respect him? No, it's because of how he treats other sentient beings. Okay. So if we are going to venerate somebody like His Holiness, it's because of how He treats sentient beings, not because He makes offerings to the Buddha. Yeah. But because because He, you know, He treasures sentient beings and sees them as valuable and sees them as lovable and sees them as wonderful. And Himself says, you know, whenever I go anywhere, I see everybody as friends. Yeah, that's why we respect Him. Okay. And, uh, you know, let's see, that was, okay. And in the same way, the merit of having faith in the Buddha is due to the eminence of the Buddha. So, you know, why do we have faith in the Buddha? Because of the Buddha's qualities. Yeah. Why do we have, uh, venerate somebody with a loving mind? Because of the way they treat sentient beings. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at the way people, and, and here, I mean, just the fact non-Buddhists, yeah, look at His Holiness, the way they look at other people who go about helping their friends and harming their enemies, the typical way. Do they have the same respect for people who go around harming their enemies? Yeah. They may say, rah, rah, those people, their enemies are my enemies, and my enemies are their enemies, and they're sticking up for me. But what kind of mind mind is that? 
Therefore, they are asserted to be equal in this share they have in establishing Buddha qualities. Yet none of them are equal in good qualities with the Buddhas who are boundless oceans of excellence. Okay, so this is so that we make it really clear, yeah, that how are we respecting sentient beings? It's not because they have the same qualities and compassion and wisdom as the Buddhas have. Yeah, it's because they are fields of merit that, and by creating that merit, we can attain our own spiritual aims in the similar way that in relationship to the Buddha, we can create merit that helps us attain our spiritual aims. Okay, but they're two different groups. Okay, now, when I read that verse, you know, I was thinking about that verse last few times um, and how interesting it is that when we are confused and we don't know what to do who do we ask for help yeah we usually ask for advice and help from other people in samsara when we're upset or despondent or confused, do we sit down and read a, a thought training text or read a sutra or listen to a Dharma uh, talk? You know, when we need advice or support or comfort. Yeah, who do we turn to? Yeah, who do you turn to? Come on. You guys like to talk. <laughs> What's the answer? You know? Do we do we turn to the to the holy beings for advice? Yeah. Do we even turn to, you know, to living people who are wise for advice? We usually turn to our friends, don't we? To the people who agree with our ideas and who think in a worldly way and who give us worldly advice that we then respect and follow. Yeah. They've, do you remember Dear, Dear Abby? Yeah. So this is from a certain generation. Do all of you know Dear Abby? Okay. Anyway, she's been, she's been reincarnated, uh, uh, you know, because now in some of the newspapers, again, there's, you know, this advice column. You know, there's mismanners, yeah, and uh, I don't know what the other ones are called, but it's it's you know the incarnation of dear Abby and uh, and dear Ann Landers. Remember Ann Landers too? They were sisters, yeah, but they they had columns in different newspapers, yeah. 
So, you know, we, we, we turn to, to somebody like that for advice. Yeah, very interesting what people ask for advice for. And, and, and then, you know, follow that advice. Do they, you know, think, do they ask a wise person or, or look at the scriptures? You know, even the, the scriptures from their own religion. You know, because all religions teach forgiveness. Yeah, all religions teach cherishing others. Yeah, no, we don't look at that. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, to ask ourselves and do a little checkup. When I need advice, who do I go to for advice? Yeah, I've had this situation where people come to me for advice and I give them advice and then they get really mad at me because they don't like my advice, okay? And this comes up especially in, uh, in cases of unwanted pregnancy. You know, you would think if somebody called me for advice, they would know what the answer is going to be. Well, I don't always give them the answer that they want to hear. And then some of them get really mad. Yeah. I try and present other alternatives, you know, because I'm anti-abortion and pro-choice. Yeah. But because I don't think it should be politicized at all the way it has been. But um, yeah, quite interesting how when people give us advice that doesn't agree with what we want to do, <laughs> we get mad at them. And you find people who will go from one Dharma teacher to the next Dharma teacher to the next one to the next one, asking the same question until they find someone who is going to tell them to do what they want to do. Yeah. And so you wonder, why did they spend so much time going to ask the question to all these other people. Yeah, if all they wanted to do is follow their own idea to start with. You know, well, because it's a way of not taking responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. If it, go, if it goes bad, then, well, they, they told me to do this. I don't have to be responsible for it. This is one of the reasons why monastics have a precept about uh, the way the precept is worded is not to carry messages from a man to a woman and a woman to a man. What the precept is, is about is not getting involved in other people's romantic relationships and giving them advice about who to marry and who not to marry and so on, okay? Because if you do that, I, I remember Venerable Vuyen teaching this in, in 96, and she said, you know, if you play matchmaker, because especially like in ancient, in ancient India, there were matchmakers. I mean, today in India, in many cultures have matchmakers, you know, nowadays, if you make match, if you are a matchmaker, Venerable William said, leaning forward, 
How many good marriages do you know of? <laughs> and if the marriage isn't good and you were the matchmaker, who are people going to blame? You. Yeah. So better you let people decide for themselves and be responsible for their own choices. Yeah. And that this is a serious precept too. You know, it's a it's a Sangha Vesesa. So it's not a minor precept, it's a major one. Okay. Okay. Maybe questions? Anybody have questions or comments? I was thinking um in the last days um no, I had once a, a dream of being in a house and a man told me to take care of his uh, dogs. And then dogs got wild and ran out, jumped on the trees. And I was, instead of um, resting, I was kind of getting crazy mentally and thinking I have to catch these dogs. And I was running after them, exerting, um, exerting my own abilities even, you know, thinking I can jump on the tree as well. <laughs> <laughs> And then falling down and breaking my neck. So, <laughs> but then I lately was thinking, it, for some reason, this came back to me. Why did I not just sit and meditate it? You know, why could I not just um, be calm with him myself and seeing what abilities I really have, you know, and that would have been more useful. So in this regard, who do we ask to uh, for advice? Also to, if I'm already like, where I steered up with all kinds of thoughts, it, it, it makes it even worse if I ask a person. There's another thought coming from the outside. I already have enough of, <laughs> of stimulation. Why do I not sit down and just calm firstly and then find maybe an inner yeah. um, voice that I, um, I received due to my learning and meditating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. You know, exactly. When, when, my mind is troubled, why don't I practice thought training? You know, that's, I'm saying what you said in, a, you know, in, different, in different words, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Why don't I just practice what I've learned? Yeah. Calm myself down, see the situation more accurately. I've been thinking all week about your advice to us last week about trying to identify things from the past still control us in the present and could control us going forward. And of course, there's some things I'm very aware of where I see it's still a potent force. But as I continued looking, you know, there's more and more things I think that I have no clue about. No clue. Just because it's such, you know, it was in my culture, in my family, in my schooling. And of course, as our Dharma wisdom grows, those things will be revealed. But, you know, then there's past life effects. And so I'm just wondering, you know, to get, start getting deeper into the things that we're clueless about. Yeah. How this process unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. And how you just keep applying the Dharma to every, to all those things and really using your own analytic ability. You know, what is true? If I, if I do this, what's the result? If I follow that, what's the result? 
you know, and really is learning to assess things ourselves because there's a whole lot of those things that you, like, you're right, we're totally clueless about. Totally. We don't even realize we have certain assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, th- I think it can be very good to live in other cultures. Yeah. I, I know speaking for myself, uh, living, in, you know, in the Tibetan community, I began to see that, um, maybe democracy is not the best thing for everybody. I had never questioned democracy before. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I think autocracy is good, you know. But, you know, you need, you can't just go into a country and say, now we're going to be democratic. It, it requires a lot of preparation and cultural attitudes and things like that. Yeah. And I never thought that before. I just thought, yeah, democracy's best. You just, you know, that's what America's doing is spreading democracy. But we aren't, why are those democracies failing? Because we aren't creating the, the underlying causes that need to be there to sustain that kind of government. Yeah. And yeah, so that, I mean, there are so many things that, um, you just begin to look at and question again. And now my way of thinking about this, that, or the other thing, what is it based on? I I did that a lot. I'm talking about myself, which you know, of course, it's it's not my favorite subject or anything like that. But, um, you know, when I, right before I ordained, when I had to go back to America after being, you know, in Nepal, in India, uh, it was just a crazy time with my family, which I won't go into that story. But these things were happening, and every night my meditation was, you know, because I was getting input from my family about what they thought, and then I was also fairly new to the Dharma. It had been in the Dharma maybe a year and a half, and didn't know much. But my med- evening meditations were thinking about what's the perspective of my of my family, i.e., society, and what's what would the Buddha say about this? And just comparing those two, you know, here's this situation that happened. Yeah, the Buddha says, kind of, this is how you look at it. Society says, this is how you look at it. What do I really believe? Yeah, because I'm not just going to go and say, I believe what the Buddha said, you know. And I'm, and I'm now questioning everything society says, too. Like, what do I believe? So I would take the situation and play it out according to what my family, you know, society says you do. And here's how it would evolve and what would happen. And then I would play it out in, in my meditation about how would it would evolve if I followed what the Buddha would say. And it was extremely helpful for making my own mind clear about what I believed and what I thought, you know, and taking out all these old ideas and assumptions and really saying, you know, do they function? 
But you're right, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. (laughs) So that's why you don't get bored when you meditate. Yeah, if you're looking at this stuff, you don't get bored. Okay.